Hey everyone, and welcome to another Pod Academy podcast. My name's Craig Barfoot. In 1958, Charles David Keeling started doing something that no one else had ever done. He began measuring the amount of carbon dioxide in our atmosphere. And he began to chart these measurements on a graph, which has come to be known as the Keeling curve. The most remarkable thing about this graph when you look at it is that you can actually see our planet breathing. Every year, as winter changes to spring and plants come to life, Tons of carbon dioxide are taken out of the atmosphere. And that next autumn, as plants lose their leaves and decompose, tons of carbon dioxide are released back into the atmosphere. And the graph follows this. It oscillates up and down and up and down, but it also does something else. It rises. And as we pump more and more CO2 into the atmosphere, the graph curves continually upwards. But despite more than 50 years of study, our global society has yet to find any real solution to the problems of global warming. Why? The book Behind the Curve, The Science and the Politics of Global Warming, looks at the history of this period and tries to puzzle an answer to our global inaction. It is my pleasure today to be talking to the author of this book, Joshua Howe, Assistant Professor of History and Environmental Studies at Reed College. Joshua P. Howe, thank you very much for talking to me today. Uh, thanks for having me. At the beginning of your book, you talk about the terms, the words used to describe climate change, uh, global warming, greenhouse warming, but there is a term that you prefer. Can you maybe start off by telling us what this is? Uh, so I like Thomas Friedman's idea of global weirding, and I like it because I think it captures what we're really worried about. If the Earth's temperature went up by two or three degrees, uh, evenly everywhere, and that was it, uh, I don't think we would be all that worried about it. The issue is that the Earth is a giant energy system, and the way that uh, weather and climate work are that you have releases of energy within that system. And as you increase the energy in the system, those releases become uh, more variable and often larger. So you get uh, unpredictable storms, unpredictable droughts, unpredictable wet seasons, the type of things that exceed the margins of our infrastructures, and not just our built infrastructures as, as humans, but the infrastructures, uh, you could think of them metaphorically, uh, as infrastructures of ecosystems that organisms rely on. So all the, the, the range of weather and climate that we are accustomed to gets thrown out of whack when you increase the energy in a system, and the weather and the climate get weird. It's not so much just warming, it's everything gets out of whack. And that's what really the danger is, because ecosystems haven't evolved to deal with that out of whack uh, weather, and we haven't built our human structures to deal with that kind of out of whack weather and climate. When did the scientific consensus first actually come together on, on climate change? It's a tricky question. So the scientific consensus on climate change, I think it depends on which consensus you're talking about. I think that that CO2 is a greenhouse gas um, reflects uh, the physics of the 1860s, um, that CO2 is rising, comes to light in the 1950s, and isn't really challenged after about the 1970s. The first official uh, self-aware scientific consensus on climate change is a National Academy of Sciences report 
from 1979 that was chaired by Jewel Charney. Um, and that had established the, the range of temperature change to expect from a doubling of CO2 and I think consolidated a lot of the, the knowledge that was out there. But this is knowledge that, ha- that was agreed upon in peer-reviewed journals elsewhere before it's brought into the consensus process in 1979. And I'll note that 1979 is still a long time ago, right? I mean, this has been around for a while. Early in the 1970s, there was a, a debate if the globe was actually warming or cooling. What short and long-term impact did this have? Um, in the short term, it, it was interesting in that it uh, brought a lot of visibility to the issue, um, but visibility without any kind of resolution. So it was uh, the, the way that it was spun was, well, it could be warming, it could be cooling, we don't really know. Um, the reality is that the cooling idea, the global cooling thesis, was relatively short-lived among the mainstream climatological community. Um, the long-term impact of that blip, as I sort of think of it on in the consensus, is that deniers and skeptics have pointed to that moment in the, the early and mid-1970s as something that was that is much more prevalent than it was. So there were a few, um, and we're talking in the tens, of scientists who promoted global cooling as the kind of primary threat, the primary climatic threat in the early 1970s. Deniers and skeptics have taken those tens of scientists out of hundreds, and they've expanded their uh, perception of how influential they were, and the time frame over which they were influential to suggest that, well, we, don't, we still don't really know. Cooling is still on the table. But the reality is that was, I don't want to say debunked, but it was proven false um, or proven to be the least likely scenario as early as 1975. And in fact, some of the people, some of the very people who promoted the global cooling theory were the same people who demonstrated its problems uh, a couple years later. Something I found really informative um, and helped me to understand this disconnect between scientists and environmentalists early on was your inclusion uh, of the environmental campaign criteria of the Sierra Club uh, early in the 1980s. Could you, just for our international audience, tell us quickly who the Sierra Club is and then talk about their criterion and their effects? Sure. So the Sierra Club is probably the the center of mainstream environmentalism in the United States and one of the largest environmental organizations. And we're deeply involved in conservation in places like Yosemite um, and later, to some extent, in Yellowstone. It eventually became an environmental organization with uh, kind of a multitude of goals, everything from protecting wilderness and open space, which is their kind of uh, reason for being originally, to looking after urban environments and fighting toxicity and pesticides and those sorts of things. They're a member-driven organization that has to answer to the demands of their constituencies, and their constituencies tend to be concerned about a set of uh, wilderness and lifestyle issues that's typical of mainstream environmentalism. The criteria for their campaigns in the, the 1970s was that their, uh, their campaigns had to revolve around issues that were not overly technical, that their constituents could understand. These problems had to have a time horizon uh, for solutions so that their constituents could see that their efforts were or could be effective. And they had to be backyard kind of issues, issues that really captured the interests of their constituents, or they at least had that capture the emotions of their constituents. So if you went beyond the kind of typical, they're building a dam on our local river, 
um, or they're putting a nuclear power plant in our backyard or whatever else it was. Even things like uh, whaling, the Sierra Club was involved in, uh, in that kind of legislation because it had a, an emotional, uh, it had emotional import for their constituents. Then why was this a problem when it came to global warming? Well, in the, the early 1980s, um, the head of the Sierra Club, Michael McCloskey, articulated these criterion. And at that time, global warming was a, a relatively, I don't want to say it was new, but it wasn't a mainstream idea. The trouble with global warming is that you can't see it, touch it, taste it, smell it, or hear it. It has no bearing on your daily life. It transcends the boundaries of human experience. The only way that you can uh, interact with the global processes of the atmosphere um, and understand them as such is through the mediator of science. So it's a very technical issue. The time horizon was potentially very long. We're talking 20, 30, 50 years, whereas what McCloskey was looking for was a much more uh, tangible and short-term kind of uh, time horizon issue. And finally, the, the Sierra Club had no uh, mechanism in place. There was no legal or uh, any other kind of legislative mechanism for dealing with a problem like global warming that arose because of the release of CO2, which is sort of the heart of the entire American, in fact, global economy. Um, and so without recourse to that kind of legal structure, the Sierra Club had no means for advocacy. So they, at first, in the early 1980s, didn't want to touch the issue. It wasn't until later in that decade that they were sucked into the issue via debates about energy that they were involved in uh, on different fronts. Okay, because uh, acid rain as an issue and uh, the, the ozone depletion and the, the hole in the ozone layer were two environmental, I guess, successes where, where science was used to argue for and create change that improved the environment. Why aren't we so successful when it comes to global warming? I mean, this is a great question, and, and part of the answer to this question is an answer from history, and that is to say that the, the efforts to combat acid rain, especially through the Clean Air Act of 1990, and ozone depletion through the Montreal Protocol, shaped a vision for dealing with global warming, which is in fact a different type of problem. So acid rain has typically discrete point sources. Um, it arises largely from sulfur dioxide that comes from factories. It's not integrated into everything we do in the modern economy in the way that CO2 is, from transportation to energy production to basic consumption. In addition, there were available technologies relatively early on to, uh, and here I'm referring specifically to scrubbers that help take the CO2 out of, out of industrial emissions, uh, that help to enable businesses and countries to deal with the problem. Third, because it's a point source problem, you had a legal recourse, right? You can use the Environmental Protection Agency or its international equivalents as a way to, to regulate and to punish people who are violating agreements on acid rain. And finally, it's actually, it's an endemic problem in that acid rain is happening in a lot of different places around the globe, but by its nature, it's not global in that you don't need the whole globe for that problem to be a problem. It's regional this is sulfur dioxide being emitted in the atmosphere and then rained out into uh, streams and lakes um, and onto cities. Whereas uh, both ozone and, and CO2-induced climate change rely on truly global processes. With ozone, um, the differences have to do with the substances themselves more than anything else. Ozone-depleting substances like uh, CFCs 
by the early 80s had ready replacements. Again, they they stand at a very different place in the global economy. They weren't necessarily produced at the local level in the same way that CO2 has traditionally been. And so fixing the ozone problem was tenable at a global level where you had big global businesses who had come up with replacement chemicals who were interested in pushing treaties on ozone and you didn't have a lot of opposition from other nations or, or major industries. CO2 is not like that. Again, CO2 is at the center of the global economy. And it's not so much that nations or industries are producing it, although they are. It's that everybody everywhere is implicated in the production of CO2. And so it's a much more deeply rooted problem. And thinking about it globally masks these kinds of local relationships with with CO2. And so I think it's a different sort of problem. So there's a category of problem in political science that that Mike Holm has referred to as a wicked problem. A wicked problem has a number of characteristics. Um, One, it's typically very difficult to describe. Two, it tends to involve complex interrelated systems. Three, it usually has a long or undefined time horizon. There's no obvious end to the problem. You don't either succeed or fail. Uh, and finally, it it has uh, there's no rubric for solutions. Um, there's no very good way to measure how well you're doing with the problem if there are solutions at all. What about uh, in terms of your research and looking at suggestions and solutions that have come from the scientific community? Um, well, the thing that I'm most excited about hasn't come from the scientific community. In fact, in some ways, it's come despite the scientific community. The thing that I'm most excited about are climate action plans. Now, climate action plans are plans that are put together by municipalities, um, sit, or, yeah, so cities, states, and sometimes counties that take climate change seriously as a component of how they want their local and state level communities to look. They're taking on climate change as much because it's the right thing to do as because they think they'll be uh, effective or they need to kind of put their climate impact in uh, in terms of a global climate system. And that to me is a really powerful thing because what it's doing essentially is taking the kinds of local constituencies that were so effective in the 1960s and 1970s in creating environmental policies and putting them to work to deal with climate change at the local level. Now, when you look at it in terms of, in global terms, you step back and look at, say, the city of Portland's uh, climate action plan in reference to China and its emissions, it looks ridiculous, right? I mean, this is less than a drop in the bucket in global emissions. And so you look at this and you say, well, you know, we'll never succeed. This is just a, a, a sure way to fail. But I think looking at climate change requires us to think about failure a little bit differently than that. There's no such thing as, uh, as just a single failure. I mean, by some standards, if you want to talk about success and failure on climate change, we've already failed. The, the latest IPCC says that we're locked in for one to two degrees increase in global temperatures. That's Fahrenheit, regardless of what we do. If we were to stop emitting entirely today, we would still be locked into this one to two degree Fahrenheit increase in temperature. So we've failed. But... Failure comes in a bunch of different flavors. I mean, the difference between, say, for example, leveling off at 400 parts per million, which is what we're at now, and being at 500 parts per million in 20 years is pretty significant in the kinds of feedbacks and the kinds of changes that you're looking at. So any decrease in that total number, any contribution to um, 
reducing the slope of increase is a contribution to, I don't want to say succeeding on climate change, but failing in a way that's more tenable for natural and human systems. And that's what I like about them. I mean, they're not an ultimate solution to the problem by any means, but it's a way to mobilize a political constituency in a very democratic way to deal with a problem on moral grounds rather than focusing solely on this global scientific vision of global warming. Is there, a, is there an idea that the degree and severity of storms and the consequences of, of climate change have actually increased in the last few years? Uh, yes. As far as I know, that is, in fact, that is, in fact, true and has become a consensus among the scientific community that climate change is impacting the world now. Have we seen that spill over into the wider community? I mean, are we starting to see some some of the much-needed action on these issues? Uh, I think you are in a couple of different ways. One thing that uh, a lot of people don't recognize is that the uh, insurance and reinsurance industries have had their eyes on this for a long time. And if you look at the kinds of things that they are and aren't insuring, um, it reflects the extent to which they believe this is happening and likely to happen in various places. So reinsurance companies are pulling back their investments uh, and their insurance policies from companies that insure beachfront property in certain places, for example, because of sea level rise. I think you also see it in the way that cities and states have begun to plan for uh, climatic change in their climate action plans. So those plans that define uh, dealing with climate change as part of uh, building a, a livable city in the future have begun to incorporate adaptation schemes um, because they recognize that this is happening now. So I think you have in a number of different ways a, a broader and broader recognition that this is in fact happening. The most recent report from the U.S. military that came out describing the geopolitical impacts of climate change is one of those very sobering realizations that, for example, as the sea level rises on uh, the Bengal Delta, you could have uh, and are already starting to see large-scale migrations in places that are already political and stable. So I do think you're beginning to see the press and the general public taking this, uh, taking the impacts of climate change much more seriously. Joshua Howe, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me today. It's been a pleasure, Craig. Today, I've been talking to Joshua Howe, Assistant Professor of History and Environmental Studies at Reed College, about his book, Behind the Curve, The Science and the Politics of Global Warming. My name's Craig Barfoot, and you've been listening to another Pod Academy podcast. Thanks for listening. <laughs>